Uh, it's a joy to be with you all. It's a very humbling experience to stand up here and talk to you what I consider to be a, a very critical topic for the church. Now, before I get started by a quick show of hands, who gets excited to talk about racism? It, not many. And what I've found through dialogue, through conversation, through uh, a lot of conversations around the topic is that in the church, people often don't want to bring it up because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Now, who feels uncomfortable talking about racism? I wish I could say that this, this sectional would have you leaving feeling comfortable talking about it, but the reality is that racism, bigotry, prejudice is only born of one thing, and that's hate. It's sin and it's brokenness. And so for the rest of our lives, for the rest of time, the topic is always going to create a certain amount of tension and a certain amount of uncomfortability. But instead of promising to relieve you of it, what I would say is embrace that tension. Uh, be uncomfortable with me for the next 45 minutes because we're going to use that tension, we're going to use that uncomfortability uh, to propel us, the church, forward. So that as the topic comes up, we can hit it with the force that it needs, the force that our real and present God gives us through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, the gospel, is the only way that these tensions, that this brokenness is ever going to become something that the church deals with in a way that I believe is truly faithful to the God we serve. Now, I'm, I'm born to a, a biracial couple. My mom is white. My dad is black. My dad's from the city of St. Louis. My mom's from central Missouri. And they met at a Concordia, Missouri, St. Paul's College when it was a junior college back in the 70s. Their relationship was extremely frowned upon. And, and they have their own story, so I'm not going to dig into the details. But their relationship broke them away from their families. My mother was completely disowned by her family to the point where uh, my grandma, who later came to love me and my brother and my sisters, would write my mom letters saying that it was Satan that was making her date my dad. And my dad's family made my mom feel uncomfortable as well, not quite to that extent, uh, but nonetheless, it, it, was, it was brokenness. And so people ask me why I talk about racism all the time. It, most of it is because, like most people of color in this country, I've been experiencing it my entire life. It's something that I can't get away from. I can't change my skin color, nor do I want to. I'm a proud person of color, and so I've been experiencing racism, so it's something that I talk about so that I can help or at least try to wrap my mind around why, in specific, people in the church would feel this way about people who are different than them. But also, people ask me about it. Uh, you know, I, I, before I got my call to Lutheran Hour Ministries, I was a missionary in Ferguson, and if you look into Ferguson and what happened there now five years ago, Racism was at the heart of it. People were looking at it from a distance, and they weren't really trying to wrap their minds of what was really taking place. But at the very center of Ferguson, the events that took place was systemic racism. Again, a very hard topic to talk about, but that's the reality of it. Uh, so there was that, and I didn't say, hey, I want to go to the National Youth Gathering and talk about racism. They asked me to do it, so people in our church also find it to be a relevant topic. They in today's culture, in our society, we see it every day. So at some point together as a church, we have to decide how we're going to approach it. 
how we're going to discuss it, and what we're going to do together to make sure that it doesn't continue uh, to break us apart, to divide us, and to cause divisions amongst each other. So my first real experience with a true bigot, somebody who hated black people and believed in systems where black people should be placed in certain conditions in society was on a military base. Uh, my dad was a Marine until I was the age of 11. And on a military base, you don't really encounter racism all that much. Uh, you know, you have men and women bonding together, protecting our borders, serving our country, fighting together. And when you're at that stage of, a, of life with somebody where you're really depending on their life, there's, there's no room for racism. So when it happened, it, it not only took me by surprise, but it took our neighborhood by surprise. Uh, we lived on Laurel Bay Military Base, and one day uh, in the summer of 91, right before I started second grade, uh, we got new neighbors, which is something that happens all the time on a military base, and it was a white guy, his wife, and his daughter, who was also my age. And, and he didn't like black people, and I know he didn't like black people uh, because he put up this little garden fence in between our yards. It wasn't a real fence, but it was the dividing line. He measured it out, and he put it up, and he told me and my brother and my sisters that we weren't allowed to cross that line. That was his yard, and he didn't want black people in his yard. And so one day, uh, we had a field behind our yard, and there was a tree house, in a, like the one tree in the whole big field, uh, and I wanted to go play in it. And I, in my excitement at six years old, ran out my back door, and I crossed the back corner of his yard. And as I was climbing up the ladder to get in the tree, I, I felt somebody grab my ankle and pull me out of the tree. And it was this grown man, a U.S. Marine, who was drunk. I could smell the whiskey on his breath. As I talk about the experience, I, I can still smell the whiskey. Uh, nonetheless, he, he pulled me out of the tree and he said, you nigger, you stepped in my yard. And he pushed me down and continued to push me down all the way till we got back in our yard. And that, that rocked my world in a way that... Uh, I don't think any six-year-old should have to experience life, but, but nonetheless, it, it changed me. It changed me in a way to where from that day forward for a very long part of my life, I began to look at white men very differently uh, from a, a posture of uh, suspicion, often hate, and distrust. And now I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but, but that's how I felt based upon experience. And for a very large part of my life, I felt justified in feeling that way. Uh, not because every white man I ever came across treated me that way, but it felt like they had the potential. And so that's how I carried myself forward through life. Now on the other hand, uh, I, I know that racism isn't something that stays with people. So nobody has a, a racist gene. You're not born with it. It's, it's an ideology, it's a, it's a worldview that you're taught. And unfortunately, it's been taught and passed down from generation to generation. Again, that's one of the reasons why I think we need to continue to talk about it. A, because it still exists, which means it's still being taught to somebody. So whether or not people want to say our generation's younger people are more tolerant, the reality is I, I don't think we have some innate ability to be more tolerant. Nothing makes us more tolerant. We're becoming more we can see more in the world. We have more access. But nonetheless, we still have access to this racism. But I have a cousin named Billy. Now, Billy is in his 70s, 
way older than me. Uh, but Billy, my cousin on my mother's side, was in the KKK. Now, I only know that Billy was in the KKK is because somebody told me he was in the KKK. Because earlier in Billy's life, when he was in his 20s, Billy joined the Marine Corps. And in the Marine Corps, he had to get along with people of color, people who looked differently than them. And that, in, in combination with his faith in Jesus, Billy came to realize that his racism wasn't something that God wanted in his life. It wasn't something that was good. It wasn't something that was faithful. And Billy changed. And I know Billy changed because when we would go to St. James for Thanksgiving, the first people that Billy would seek out on Thanksgiving Day was first my dad, in part because my dad uh, served in the Marine Corps, not at the same time as Billy, but alongside Billy. That's how they would say it. Uh, but also because he wanted to really demonstrate uh, to some of my white family how prejudice and how bigotry could be overcome. That even though you were racist one part in your life, you didn't have to be that way forever. It's something that you can repent from. It's something that you can reflect upon. And it's something that you can change. But it, but it takes work. It, it, it takes uh, proximity and empathy. Uh, again, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. And so I want to come back to the original question. Do we, the church, children of God, people who have been baptized into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, do we really need to bother ourselves uh, with this, this question of racism, this dialogue of racism, when it makes people so uncomfortable, when it creates so much tension, and, and bringing it up uh, puts people in boxes, it gets people to reflect a certain way, and, and can cause division. And as together, the, the body of Christ, as we approach this question, and as we think about it in our specific context of the LCMS, I believe that the first thing we have to do is approach it with humility and understanding that the church isn't by nature absolved from this concept. Uh, so a few months ago, I was doing my daily devotion I had already been months into preparing for this presentation, and I came across Acts chapter 6. And I'll admit, like many people, I read my devotion, and sometimes stories come across, the, the words come across my eyes, and I just breeze past them. Uh, but as I was preparing for this conversation with you all, uh, this part of Acts chapter 6 just jumped out of the page. And it was the part that I, I mentioned in the description of this, and that the Greek-speaking Jewish people, uh, let me rewind. Uh, at one point in the early church, everybody sold everything that they had so that everybody would have everything in common, so that everybody would be taken care of equally. There was equity in the church at first, but as time took place, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the majority, the first kind of Christian group, began to take advantage of their numbers, and they weren't serving the Greek Jews equally their widows, their fatherless, they weren't giving them the same amount of resources that they were giving to their own. And I realized that was racism at work. I, I think too often when we think about racism, especially in our context, we, we only think about white and black people, and that's the discussion of racism. We don't think about other people groups because in our context that's been the conversation for a few centuries. It's white versus black. 
but Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews, they're different people groups. They came from different cultures, and I have to imagine, even though I'm not, I wasn't alive 2,000 years ago, they probably looked different. They spoke different languages. And so racism is a system in place where, more times than not, the people in the majority use their numbers to impose a certain condition upon the minority. So again, in our country, white people have historically been the majority and people of color have been the minority. And that's when I was like, man, racism has been around for a very long time, not just in the world, but also in the church. And so as we explore this together, we have to step back and realize that there's nothing about us internally people who are baptized in Jesus Christ, but also a part of this sinful and broken world, at least in it, that, that excludes us from this. We're all susceptible to it. And so we have to, A, look at who we are, and I think to some extent we have to know a little bit about our history. Uh, in seminary, I was very curious uh, about how the LCMS has dealt with race relations throughout her time, our church specifically. Uh, and I, I did it in hopes that I was going to find, I was going to go back in time and, and see that the church was always on the right side of history. When racism popped up in the world, that our church spoke out courageously, boldly, and bravely that racism is a sin. Now, before I do that, listen, I don't think I would have been invited to stand on this stage if if I thought that the whole church was racist. I don't think anybody would have come to this sectional if our whole church was racist. Uh, but that being said, uh, what I found in our history was rather disappointing. So in St. Louis, where I'm from, where the LCMS got her roots, uh, racism, slavery was legal. In fact, when my dad was born in 1954, St. Louis was still legally segregated. There were fountains in St. Louis that my dad couldn't drink from until he was 13 years old. That's one generation away from you and I. Uh, so this systematization of bigotry, racism, isn't as far removed from us as we think historically. Nonetheless, when slavery was legal, the LCMS had an opportunity to look at American racism and say it was wrong. But the church looked at American slavery and said some of the abuses of slavery are wrong, but slavery in and of itself isn't wrong. But again, our racism, our slavery was different. And this is what the church should have said. Because if you look at the time, uh, slave owners gave their slaves Bibles, at least ones that whoever was literate could read to other slaves. But in that Bible, they had removed any notion of freedom. The story of the people of, of uh, the early Israelites that went from Egypt into the promised land, that story was removed. All the stories that, that talk about God setting people free were taken away from the slave's Bible. In other words, the gospel was taken away from the slave's Bible. So whether the church, and you can look at the Bible and say slavery existed or not, the church should have been able to say, at the very least, American slavery is wrong, 
because it's not giving the black people who were enslaved the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the true ability to have real faith, the faith that we know saves people. We should have been able to do that. Uh, fast forward a, a few decades and you get to Plessy versus Ferguson. That's the act that made education specifically separate but equal. I hope we can all agree that separate but equal is never equal. And so out in the world, uh, churches were still legally segregated, uh, churches and schools. Black people went one place, white people went another place. And our church mirrored that. And I had to do some research. If you look in our church, not a lot of people are willing to talk about these early stages. But there's a man named Andrew Schultz. And he, he was a pastor in the early 20th century, the early 19th, uh, 1900s in St. Louis. And in his book, he was telling a story about young black men in his congregation who wanted to become pastors. They're from St. Louis. They wanted to go to the St. Louis Seminary. Uh, but our country had this Plessy versus Ferguson Act, separate but equal. And in a moment where our church could have done something courageous and brave and stand on the right side of history, they did the wrong thing. The president of the seminary told them that there is a black seminary in North Carolina. If those young black men want to be pastors, they can go to that seminary. They can go to the black seminary, but not the white seminary in St. Louis. So most of those young black men who wanted to become pastors in the LCMS didn't. In a moment where our country, the world, was broken and divided by race, and our church had the opportunity to stand up and do something else, they just went along with the world. They didn't stand up with the gospel. Uh, they didn't try to mirror this image of the church that God has, uh, a place where all nations and all tongues come together to worship him, to celebrate his gifts. They did something else. And, and that's unfortunate. It's not all bad. Uh, there, are, there are other moments. We have Rosa Young. If you haven't heard about Rosa Young, you need to go out and bit, buy the first Rosa uh, from Amazon because this, in this incredible story of where white Lutherans went to Alabama to help Rosa set up schools, which eventually became Concordia Selma, which unfortunately has now closed. Uh, but nonetheless, there, there are shining moments. And so now segregation, discrimination is illegal. I went to St. Louis Seminary. Other black pastors have gone there. And so now that it looks like racism and segregation no longer exist, how are we doing as a church? How do we look? When racism comes up and it pops up in front of our eyes, what is our response? Again, I told you to answer this question for us. It's going to take extreme humility. It's going to take us looking at the mirror, really seeing who we are, really looking at what God would have for us and answering the question honestly. And while we're getting better at it, I, I still don't think we're in a place where we need to be. And this is what I mean. The LCMS is the third least diverse religious body in all of America. We're 97 or 98% white. I get it. Uh, my grandmother on my mother's side was a third-generation German immigrant. Lutheranism was in her heritage. Our church came from Germany. It's historically white. But our country is no longer white. 
exclusively. The fact that we don't even come close to approaching the cultural milieu of our country, we, we have two options. We can say it's everybody else, that we're actually doing our job preaching the gospel in a way, in a fashion that they would gravitate towards it, or, or we're not. Either God's word does what it says it'll do, or it doesn't. And if we ask ourselves that question, I just, I, I have to say, I don't think we're doing our job. Listen, the Mormons had written in their holy book that black people were the spawn of Satan until the 1970s, not that long ago. I have a sister who was born in 1976. They're more diverse than we are. They have more people, cultures from around the world joining their church than we do. And so you have to get to a point where you're just willing to accept that maybe, maybe there is some prejudice Maybe there is some bigotry in our church, and and maybe instead of letting our uncomfortability and the tension control us through fear, maybe we should be doing something about it. And so let's fast forward to my time in Ferguson. So again, I've been going around talking about racism for three years. It's not something that I really signed up to do. Uh, in fact, when I, when I first got my call, I had to do fundraising. I had to go off and, and tell people about Ferguson and why they should support me as a missionary. And uh, what I found was no matter how much I talked about the things I wanted to talk about, people wanted to know more about Ferguson and what happened. And so I had to get to a point where I was comfortable saying, listen, you can go do the research yourself. I've done it. Uh, the city of Ferguson was found guilty of systemic racism. That's the truth by the Department of Justice. And, and they've passed on all kind of legislation that is trying to force Ferguson to change. And when you have a place like Ferguson, uh, where the white population has controlled and targeted the black, con- the black part of the community, that turn is difficult. Uh, but as I was going around and doing it, the place that I experienced the most bigotry was always on Sunday morning. When I was the the lone person of color with my brothers and sisters in Christ, a room full of white people, uh, talking about Ferguson. Now, listen, uh, most people that I came across, you know, they they have prejudice, they have bigotry because it's ignorant-based, meaning the sources that they turn to to get information about this are one-sided and, you know, make you lean one way and so you're informed to be one way and then somebody like me comes along and gives you a different piece of information you digest it and now your your worldview is beginning to change but far too often somebody would come to me and say something that was really bigoted uh i was in i was in a place doing my presentation and and i could see an older gentleman throughout the entirety of my presentation it was getting redder and redder and I, he was getting angry. And I knew when I got done with my presentation and opened up to questions, he was going to be one of the first people to ask a question. And I was right. His hand shot up in the air so fast, he wanted to say what he had to say. And verbatim, the first words that came out of his mouth were, no disrespect to you and your color. Now, listen, if you're trying to have a debate on this topic and you go to a person of color and you say, no disrespect to you and your color, uh, it's disrespectful. 
That's, that's just, I'm going to be disrespected if that's how you begin a conversation with me. And anybody, like, if I came up to you and it was like, no disrespect to you and white people, you'd be offended, right? And then went on to say black people are just lazy, they don't want to get jobs, and they just want to have kids and live off of welfare. That's a, a different topic, uh, not for today, uh, but the moral of the story was he was wrong. Not simply because his, his information was wrong, but that's not a godly attitude. And I assure you that that man who obviously is living in hate, therefore living in sin because he hates a brother in Christ who's a different color than him, living in sin, received no spiritual discipline. Uh, fast forward, uh, one Christmas, uh, it was actually the day after Christmas, I had written an article in the Lutheran Witness and uh, you know, I've grown up in the Lutheran church, and, and so often I hear things that are good Lutheran things, like the name Schmidt. That's a good German Lutheran name. Uh, jello, uh, jello mold, the, the, the jello with fruit in it. I don't know what you guys call it. That's a good German potluck thing. Listen, I don't like that German salad stuff. I'm just, I don't even like jello. Uh, but I, I wrote an article in the Lutheran Witness, and all I said was, you don't have to like that German salad to be a Lutheran. And what I'm saying is, you don't have to be German to be a Lutheran. And I don't think we should only want Germans in the Lutheran church. But nonetheless, somebody who was on the verge of joining the Lutheran church read that article and found it in themselves to find my email so that they could send me an email saying that they hope that I go to hell, A, for preaching the gospel in a black community, and for saying what I said. And so I can only take it this way, is that they were wanting to join the Lutheran church because they saw us as a conservative church body that didn't like people of color. That's the perception we're giving the world. Uh, I deleted the email. I don't think I'm going to go to hell for my work in Ferguson, so I was able to move on. But again, it, it, it just it hurt because, listen, I, I love the LCMS. It's the only church I've ever known. It, it's, I, I, it's the only church I'll ever know. But for somebody to approach me uh, based upon a, an article uh, that in hopes that they were joining a bigoted church body hurts us. It, it should hurt you as much as it hurts me. Uh, and then, again, I was home in St. Louis at a church doing a presentation. A guy rises up. He's about to ask. No, actually, he approached me. He wanted to say something to me, not in front of everybody. And I've been doing this long enough. When somebody wants to say something to me, not in front of the rest of the group, I'm probably about to feel some tension. And so we, we go out. I, I approach him. I say, yeah, why don't we go out in the hallway? And all he wanted to do is tell me that the events in Ferguson made him more racist. Now, listen, like if he's that comfortable saying that to me, he's probably living in such a way that he's exuding his bigotry. We'll do spiritual discipline for all sorts of things. If, if you're in an open homosexual relationship, your pastor won't give you communion. If you're actively cheating on your wife and everybody in the church knows it, we're not going to give you communion. But if you go on Facebook, and you post that you hate black people, all black people, and there's nothing that will change your mind, I don't think you'll receive any spiritual discipline. Now, I'm not saying that bigoted people need to be kicked out of the church. 
Uh, instead, I would say they need to be gathered further into the gospel so that they can gain a, a deeper understanding of what it truly means to be a baptized child of God. Uh, but the fact that people can be racist in our church, really racist, really hate people of color, and nobody do anything about it is a problem for all of us. Because as long as that continues, that 97% will become 98%, then 99%. And so nobody who isn't German wants anything to do with us. And if you follow uh, demographics in our country, that means that no matter how you view church growth, it's very possible that our numbers will shrink to abysmal levels. And I want more people to come into the Lutheran Church. Because uh, something I, I found in my time in Ferguson is people are going to all kinds of churches where uh, pastors are preaching radical things. Especially in a neighborhood like Ferguson that's predominantly black there and poor, uh, that they need to give all of their money to the church for God to have favor on them. And those people give all their money to the church. Their lives don't change. It doesn't feel like God has any favor on them. And they feel like they're destined for destruction, for hell. They feel unworthy to be a part of the body of Christ, and they leave the church. Or their pastor says, if you don't change your life and start living the way I'm preaching to you that you have to live, then God doesn't love you. And then they leave. Their life is difficult. They, they don't live up to the standards that their pastor has put before them. And then they leave the church. And the only thing I know for sure is that if you don't have faith in Jesus, then you can't go to heaven. If, if there's one thing in the world that I know is that my faith in Jesus, not what I do, but my faith in the one who came into this world, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and will come back for you and I. If I don't have faith in him, then I will not be saved. And I was coming across all these people who had been preached this crazy, radical message. And for the first time in their lives, when I said, it's not according to what you've done, but instead according to what Christ has done for you, that's what saves you. I've had guys that were incarcerated for 10 years come into my office, hear that message, and be in tears within five minutes of a conversation because it was the first time in their lives that they heard the gospel. We're not Lutheran uh, because we're German. We're, we're not Lutheran because we're conservative. We're not Lutheran for X, Y, and Z. We're Lutheran because we understand the gospel. That in this broken world, it's grace, faith, and the word of God alone that changes and transforms hearts. And if we don't find a way to reflect that, and everything we do within this, this broken and, and divisive world, then that message is going to be lost. Now, I, I told you I wasn't going to make you more comfortable. And the longer I go on, the, the, the less comfortable it gets because it is a harsh reality. I mean, we're, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're in that space where you have some prejudice, some bigotry in your heart, listen, don't let it grow. Racism is a virus. It's something that, that latches onto insecurity, fear and hate, 
and, and, can, and it, it's fed by those things. And as you look out into a world that's broken and you see uh, people dying and you see people starving, you see people doing all kinds of ridiculous things, it's only going to grow. Uh, the only way uh, to really, in my mind, to get over it is first embrace the fact that you're broken. Outside of Jesus Christ, we're all broken. We all need help. Everybody uh, has some prejudice in their heart. I, I told you earlier, for a vast majority of my life, I had an extreme prejudice towards white men. And that's the truth, especially white men that were older than me. If they told me something, it went in one year, out the other. That included my teachers. And for a long time, it included my pastors because... I've never had a black pastor, so my pastor would get in the pulpit, say something. It meant nothing to me. It, it took a DCE, a, a man by the name of, of Jeff Moeller uh, in St. Louis, uh, that created a space for me and my friends. We had these youth events, and by the time I got to eighth grade, you know, what? Who, well, I don't know, maybe you guys do, but in my church on Friday once a month, not a lot of people wanted to show up. So I started bringing my friends from Ferguson over there, uh, and Jeff opened up the gym. He gave us safe space. He, he gave us a, a, a place to be ourselves. He didn't preach at us, but he did do devotions with us. Eventually, he started a basketball team with us, and he, he continued to grow with us. And, and Jeff showed me that that prejudice I was holding in my heart towards white men wasn't their fault. It wasn't their problem. It was mine. It, it was that same virus of prejudice and bigotry that had grown so long in my heart that I, I couldn't see that it was me. I, again, I had justified it. Uh, white guys, they, they pick on six-year-old kids. They, they get drunk and they do all this other stuff. I had my, this whole image of, of what white men were in my mind, and it, it took one who was willing to take the time and invest in me and my friends for me to get over that. I think the one of the first ways to get through this is proximity. Is if you're in a context where there aren't a lot of black people or people who look differently than you, it might seem difficult, but there will become a time in your life when it's not difficult, I'm sure of it. But if you're in a neighborhood where there are people of color and you're afraid to go there because you have preconceived notions of what that neighborhood would be like, go. Meet the people, get close to them, see what makes them tick, understand who they are, and then maybe you might begin to understand their pain and their struggles, why they do the things that they do. And through building a relationship with them, through investing time with them, you'll be able to help them overcome their preconceived notions of you as you overcome your preconceived notions of them. And then, through that proximity, through that empathy, there will most likely be space for you to share who you really are. Not simply a person of color or a white person, a German, an African, a Mexican, but a child of God. One who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who without that sacrifice would be destined 
for doom, but because you have this real present God, this, this wonderful Savior, this mighty God who overcame all things in this world because you belong to him. You're more than a conqueror. You're part of a body that transcends time and space. That you have brothers and sisters in Christ lifting you up, praying for you each and every day. Holding this thing together that we call church. I'd like to end by praying with you all. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful opportunity where we can come together. Tens of thousands have descended upon this city to call upon your name and give you praise. White people, black people, Hispanics, Asians, people from all around the world coming together as one body and one faith, one baptism to celebrate the life that you have given us. But we still live in this broken and divisive world. We ask that through faith in you, through our time together, that you continue to work on our hearts and our lives to help us break down those barriers so that the life, the light that you give us, life in the gospel, a new life, a new beginning, can begin to shine in the world and heal all wounds, especially the wounds of prejudice, bigotry, and racism. And be with our young people as they continue to grow in faith and grow in this world that they begin to be and, and continue to be the people that you've created them to be. Bearers of your good news for eternal life in your name. Through your son Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.